Welcome to Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This series of mini pods accompanies my latest book, Real Decarbonization. And on today's show, I speak with Richard Newell, who's president and CEO of Resources for the Future. From 2009 to 2011, Richard served as the administrator of the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So you may know that as the agency responsible for official U.S. government energy statistics and analysis. He's also served as the senior economist for energy and environment on the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And he founded Duke University's Energy Initiative when he was on faculty there. And that's when I first met him. He has a bachelor's degree in engineering and philosophy from Rutgers University, an MPA in public policy from Princeton, and a PhD in environmental and resource economics from Harvard. Along with his responsibilities at RFF, Richard remains an adjunct professor at Duke. You can learn more about Richard's biography in our show notes. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation we have about what a think tank and NGO thinks about how the oil and gas industry can lead into the decarbonizing energy future. Richard Newell, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization podcast. It's so exciting to spend this time chatting with you. I really enjoyed the podcast. Wonderful. I, I'd love to get your, your two cents because in, in my last book, I emphasize that a 10-year real decarbonization strategy for oil and gas companies is needed. And and you have such an interesting perspective and interesting career. And I'm wondering from your, from your vantage point at RFF, what do you think needs to happen for the oil and gas industry to both show leadership in advancing a low carbon future and also like earn, earn credibility from, from folks like you and, and your supporters at RFF? Sure. Well, there's, I think I'd mention, you know, three things. The first really is reducing methane emissions that are associated with oil and gas production. You know, as, as you and I'm sure most of your listeners will know, methane, which is natural gas, is about 30 times or has about 30 times the warming power as carbon dioxide over the long term. And in the near term, let's say the next couple of decades, that's three times the warming power of carbon dioxide. And so we really do need to address that important source of emissions. And it, it's a way to have pretty immediate impact also on, on global warming because of the uh, kind of the short-term nature of, of methane when it goes into the atmosphere. So what does this mean? This means eliminating leaks. It means eliminating flaring, you know, even, you know, although flaring, you know, burns methane in terms of carbon dioxide, you, you find when you actually look at flaring that it tends to be incomplete. So really eliminating the leaks, eliminating flaring, you know, we've got um, a proposed or reproposed regulations that have been forward, but by the Environmental Protection Agency, which I think you know provide a very solid basis for really requiring the industry to do that, but which I think honestly is to the industry's advantage because um, it doesn't do you know anybody any good for particularly things like like natural gas to have questions about its its potential role in not increasing emissions but decreasing emissions by substituting for coal. So number one, reduce methane emissions. The second thing I would say is that companies need to reduce the overall greenhouse gas emissions associated with their operations, and they need to reduce that to net zero emissions over time, meaning that the emissions that continue to exist are offset by a carbon dioxide removal somewhere else. 
And this really needs to be not just an aspiration, which there's many you know, aspirations and ambitions for net zero time. It really has to be become a reality. And so what does that mean in terms of a company's uh, operations? It means being having more efficient operations. It means substituting electric power for systems that are currently fueled by diesel or natural gas. And it means applying uh, carbon capture and storage solutions to the emissions that, you know, that continue to exist. One step broader than that, and I would say kind of the biggest and in some ways hardest piece of this is that companies uh, need to develop technologies and business strategies that are consistent over time with driving the full scope of their emissions to net zero. And this includes final combustion of the products they sell. So what does this mean? This is going to mean investing in clean hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, uh, synthetic fuels that in their life cycle have zero emissions, you know, as well as adjacent businesses that can leverage, uh, you know, the incredible capabilities of large energy companies. This is things like, you know, geothermal, which requires drilling, it's offshore wind, which requires, you know, massive platforms uh, and the like. So those would be the, the top three things that I think the industry needs to do to, to show leadership, particularly around climate. I couldn't agree more, Richard. So yay, we're off to a good start. Um, the way I would summarize your points are one, companies really have to get their houses in order. No one's going to take a decarbonizing oil and gas company seriously if they haven't done everything within their power to reduce their emissions. I really like this idea about then second driving down greenhouse gas to net zero because there's so many really interesting potential solutions and what we call oil and gas adjacent spaces from CO2 removal, sequestration. And then that really lends itself to your third point, which is um, investing in the technologies and business strategies, which again, if we even just lean on core skills of the industry, there's so much that can be done around renewable fuels, hydrogen, low carbon and zero carbon gases and liquids geothermal. So I love your three-pronged approach, and I think it's very consistent with where we see leading oil and gas companies moving their, their thinking and, and then ultimately their operations. So a, a theme in all of that is evolution. And you are, I, I cannot believe that RFS is 70 years old. So happy anniversary or happy birthday, however you all like to think about it. And you've been the president and CEO there. Just for anyone who's listening who isn't familiar with RFF, there's just I've just had so many great experiences with your colleagues, inclu including you, of course, but Daniel Ramey, uh, Jan Mares, uh, just a lot of influential participants and dialogues with the industry. Tell me a little bit about how are you thinking about the evolution of RFF, you know, 70 years in and in this world that's changing so fast? Yeah, it is pretty incredible when you um, when you look back at the the history of RFF. It's really the history of the the post war era, just like the world around us. RFF is constantly evolving uh, to meet the needs of decision makers who are navigating a really rap you know pretty rapidly changing economy, environment, and energy system. You know, so we celebrated our 70th anniversary uh, last year. RFF was originally founded in 1952, and this was in the shadow of World War II and amid the geopolitical instability of the Korean War. And at that point, uh, resource scarcity concerns ran quite high, uh, including the future availability of minerals and materials that are critical to human development, things like copper and nickel and cobalt. 
And, you know, I remarked when we had our anniversary like last year that this might sound like the critical minerals discussions of today, but these concerns were really prevalent around 1950 as well. So RFF was created to meet the national need for trusted information and analysis to guide the development and conservation of the country's natural resources. So the vision that we need both a healthy environment and a thriving economy to advance human well-being has been at the core of RFF's mission really from the very beginning. But, you know, there's some commonalities, but the big challenges uh, that society is grappling with have, of course, evolved over the decades. And RFF's focus has evolved in parallel. So for a while, it was water pollution was a really uh, key focal point, air pollution, local air pollution, the energy crisis of the 70s and 80s, liberalization of the natural gas sector, and then the power sector's acid rain. So RFF has really shifted its focus depending upon, you know, what the needs of the time were. Well, today, you know, climate change is the single greatest environmental threat of our time. But now environmental actions and technical solutions alone uh, really won't be sufficient to protect and advance our communities. So, you know, solving the climate challenge, you know, as, as I know you appreciate, really requires systemic economic change at a very large scale, at a global scale. And that's where RFF comes in, in helping decision makers use the best available information to make smart decisions. And we have an increasing of focus also on the equity of those decisions so that they benefit people in terms of their health, their environment, and the economy they depend on. So, you know, right now our agenda is focused on achieving impact through, you know, two key interconnected priorities. One priority is around designing net zero emission strategies, and the complementary strategy is around building resilient and equitable communities. I'd say, you know, I could go in at length about this, but just to give you an overall sense, you know, on the first front, we're helping to develop net zero emission strategies that are effective, that they're efficient, and they're equitable. You know, what does that mean? So that's strategies that not only reduce emissions, but do it as cheaply as possible and do it in a way that benefits people fairly. So this includes solutions that drive climate progress across the whole economy and also, you know, specific strategies for major sectors including the power sector, the transportation sector, industry and fuels, and, and of course, land use, forestry, and agriculture. So that's kind of the, the first major strategic area. And of course, we could drill down, you know, because the complexities of each of those individual sectors, for folks who work in those sectors, they understand that each of those, it's like an onion that you peel back, and you realize the, um, the need for really careful um, design of policies, market strategies, business strategies to, to really rework a lot of the wiring, the energy wiring of the global economy. So the, the second front is um, working with decision makers to ensure that they have the information they need to build resilient and equitable communities. So this includes things like understanding and mitigating the physical risks from climate change, um, the financial risks and uncertainties of a changing climate, and it also means helping to enable an equitable transition to a cleaner economy, which is in part, you know, we may come back to this in a bit, you know, we have one initiative that's around what we call equity in the energy transition, which is really thinking around how workers and communities, uh, in, particularly in the energy sector and, and related sectors, how they need to transition, what we need to do to ensure that that's an equitable transition. And then there's a complementary piece of that also related to equity, but it's more focused on addressing the legacy of environmental injustice for historically disadvantaged communities. And we've really seen issues of environmental justice and equity really emerging 
in a way that's deeply connected to some of the energy strategies that have emerged in a way that it really wasn't even just, I would say, three years ago. One thing that's amazing about the trajectory that you've been on, while the challenges have become more complex, they are thematically similar over these 70 years. And yet um, the work that you're doing is just so robust and important. So designing net zero emission strategies, you know, in resilient and equitable communities, like these are so foundational to the well-being of the world that we live in. I love that you were able to convey all of that and somehow avoid all the political trigger words that get us into these cultural divides and debates. And I think, um, Richard, you really embody why I always enjoy working with RFF so much because you manage to boil these issues down to the commonalities, the things that we can all agree on are important, and we can agree that it's important to work together towards solutions. So that's it's just really exciting to hear about that evolution. Trust is in in scarce supply these days. And so I think it's, you know, I personally feel and, and institutionally feel like it's really incumbent on us to do everything we can to build trust. And the way that we do that at RFF is by providing trusted information and analysis that regardless of the particular position, everybody's coming from a position, companies come from a position, environmental NGOs come from a position, people from different parties come with a particular set of value systems. But you know, the information analysis that we're using to, to make decisions, that really needs to be widely trusted. And so this, this sense of wide being widely trusted, not just trusted by one particular set of entities is really, really important to us. And so I, I appreciate that you appreciate that. Yeah. And I, I'll even take it a step farther and say that there's just a practicality to the way you engage, even even this idea of building trust, um, there's just a, a practicality of understanding like that the economics are going to be so important to equity and resiliency. And a lot of times these things get parsed out as if they were unconnected. But I think that what you're you're conveying is this idea of how interconnected this work is and foundational and this and there's just so much we can all we can all agree on if we focus on getting to work you know in, in these areas so yeah i i really like that and widely trusted I, I certainly would put myself into the camp of trusting the work and the people at rff let me let me pull on one of the threads of something you mentioned because if we think about designing net zero emission strategies and we think about thriving communities the industrial sector is going to be really challenging. And I'm I'm curious, you have an, an industry and fuels program that you mentioned. Can you talk about how you're approaching that? Because we're doing a lot of work in that space because there's a lot of oil and gas adjacent opportunities to decarbonize. But what are you working on and how are you thinking about that space? Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's a really important space. And you know, I'll highlight, you know, three areas where we're working. Um, you know, one is around analyzing and modeling different emission reduction strategies for key industrial sectors. And that's with a focus on the most carbon intensive industries, uh, such as cement, refining and steel, you know, industries related to fossil fuels, such as the oil and gas sector, and then also low carbon fuel producers and, and users. So that's that's one area, really helping to inform and design those emission reduction strategies. Um, the second area is around designing markets and incentives for low carbon innovation like hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, and direct air capture. It's also related to designing and scaling up hubs for hydrogen use, 
along with carbon capture and storage. If you haven't, uh, you or your listeners haven't seen it, you know, please check out our Hydrogen Hubs Explorer, which we have on our website, which maps the different proposals as they've been emerging uh, for hydrogen hubs within the DOE uh, solicitation process. And then a third area we're focused on in this particular program, um, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is working at the local, state, and regional levels to help communities identify solutions. What I think of as kind of some of the side effects of the energy transition. You know, so for example, we're working with native nations to enable energy sovereignty and help them navigate their own energy transition without kind of us prejudging what, what they should do. We're working on identifying alternatives to the more than $130 billion in revenue annually that U.S. federal, state, and local governments receive related to the production use of fossil fuels. You know, Think of the federal gasoline tax and what are we going to do when most of the vehicles on the road are electric vehicles no longer purchasing gasoline? How do we nonetheless fund our roads? Um, and a final sub-element I'll mention here is you know, we're working on issues related to workers in transition. Um, this is more kind of a, a labor issue in terms of skills matching. So how do you, you know, basically identifying the match or mismatch between the skill sets of, for example, oil and gas workers and the employment opportunities that are likely to be increasing in the future? So those give you some sense of the different sub-elements of our industry and fuels program. But it's, it's a very a very rich area to work. There's, there's so many, um, I would say, important questions and many unanswered questions. You know, the power sector over time has gotten a lot more attention to, you know, clean energy transition and emission reduction strategies. We're much further along there. And when you look at industry, you know, a lot of the questions that have already kind of been answered in the power sector are emerging now that we're able to also turn our attention to industry. Yeah, I do think industry is going to be just so interesting because that also will peak a lot of these historically disadvantaged community both and in, both interests and opportunities it's just going to be a, a very complex and important place for us to have these kind of comprehensive conversations and we will mention in the show notes your hydrogen hubs explorer tool because that sounds really cool and i have not yet taken a peek at that so looking forward to it all right let me take us international for a couple minutes here I know you've been involved as RFF in um, the Climate Conference of Parties or COP. You have hosted side events from COP27 in Egypt, but now you're expanding your portfolio with the launch of your Global Climate Policy Partnership. Can you talk about where you're hoping to go with your international work? So last year, uh, we partnered with our sister organization in Italy called the European Institute on Economics and the Environment. You know, so we actually established the European Institute on Economics and the Environment about four years ago. And now we're partnering with them. And last year launched something called the Global Climate Policy Partnership. So this partnership is a global expert working group, uh, which proposes innovative policy solutions to help meet the climate challenge. And it does that in kind of two ways. One is by working together on issues that are explicitly international. So think about trade, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And also kind of acting as a conduit for learning what different regions of the world are doing in terms of their own domestic emission reduction strategies. So what is the EU doing in terms of its power sector decarbonization? What are we doing in the United States in terms of our power sector decarbonization? And what can we learn from one another in terms of our domestic implementation? So that's been a, a quite kind of robust platform for, for learning one another. And we're constantly surprised at how much, first of all, we do need to learn from one another, how much we can, and how you know the, the fabric that you would think would be would exist often doesn't exist. And so we've really seen 
seen value from this platform. So this includes more than a dozen institutions involved, and they each bring strong connections to both the research community and the policy community in their local regions. And this spans institutions in the United States, the EU, India, Japan, China, Korea, and Brazil, just to name a few. So one of the areas we're emphasizing right now in the partnership actually comes back to uh, industrial decarbonization, which requires actions that will drive large-scale investments in new low-carbon production technologies. Now, these investments also represent a particular challenging problem for domestic international policy because uh, they tend to raise the cost and diminish the competitiveness of internationally traded primary commodities like steel, aluminum, and petrochemicals. And so, you know, you can see the ramifications of this challenge in the European Union's Emerging Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which now links international trade to the EU's carbon policy, which is its emission trading system. You know, the same issues are playing out here in the United States, and we're devoting a great deal of effort to helping inform the development of these policies in the United States, also with an eye toward what's emerging in the EU and other regions of the world. Um, I'll just quickly add that advanced uh, decarbonization is going to also require private markets to demand and uh, to seek out low carbon primary commodities. You know, building these markets is, you know, a necessary complement to the border measures designed to level the competitive playing field. And so we're also seeing, um, you know, emerging need for things like, you know, protocols for accounting systems around uh, carbon emissions embodied in traded goods. There's systems emerging in Europe. There's, you know, potential systems emerging in the United States. We've really noticed a lack of good uh, information vehicles for having one set of policymakers and decision makers being really fully aware of what's going on in the other jurisdictions. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. But, you know, one of the things that we're doing now is really helping to build those communication platforms to help establish those connections and broaden it beyond the EU and the US to the G7 and beyond the G7 as well. It's so important because I love this idea that we think that that fabric should be there, but this kind of interconnectivity of learnings and, and advancing progress actually never happens without an instigator. So in this case, you're the instigator. So that's that's exciting. Um, it, I'll be very interested to see how this work comes along. For those of us who are very engaged in helping to inform decisions around, you know, the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, and before that, you know, Build Back Better, we were surprised that the EU seemed to be surprised at what they ended up seeing in the IRA since it had been under discussion for, you know, the better part of a year. But that just illustrates how you'd assume that, you know, the drafters of those legislation and the the international partners who would, you know, be in some cases pretty deeply affected by that, there would have been, you know, kind of a more mutual understanding there, but there really wasn't. And so it's it's really was a, a bit of an eye-opener for us when it comes to things like uh, carbon border adjustment and trade and climate. That's such a great example, and it's going to be really important that we build those those networks of communication so we're not ineffective. We're not acts having unintended consequences because we miss we miss on the incentives or the communications or the consistency. So very exciting. Final question for you, Richard, what are you most optimistic about? I, I know I couldn't choose one, and so I'm going to give I'm going to give you two and I'm going to make it quick. So the two things I'm optimistic about, one is I'm I'm really quite optimistic about the innovation and deployment of the wide range of technologies that are needed to solve the climate problem. So that's one area which I think we have reason for optimism, and I'll say a little bit more about that. 
And the second thing I'm optimistic about is the shift in attention to decisions centered around net zero emissions, which is also a pretty recent uh, phenomenon. So on the on the technology side, you know, we all know that the costs of uh, renewables have come down dramatically. That opens up opportunities. It's not just that. It's also the expansiveness of the set of different technological options, whether it's advanced nuclear or carbon capture and storage or direct air capture or synthetic fuels, you know, advanced geothermal. I mean, the list, if you think just even back a decade ago, the list has uh, continued to expand and we need that. And we need it for a couple different reasons. One is that Emissions are pervasive in the economy. Uh, there is no silver technological bullet that's going to be able to solve and meet the world's energy needs at net zero emissions across the entire uh, global economy. And so we really do need a diversity of technologies. It's also, I think, incredibly important from almost like a political and stakeholder inclusivity perspective. By having a broad technological viewpoint and resource viewpoint on solving the climate problem, it allows different stakeholders, different geographies, different political parties, different countries to see themselves as part of the solution, given their own domestic and, you know, kind of natural comparative advantages. And so I think that's been a very important shift. And I, I think that, you know, the set of the wide set of incentives that have been included in, in recent federal legislation, as well as direct public spending from hydrogen hubs and CCUS to, of course, wind, solar efficiency, I think that illustrates that we're actually headed in a good direction there. And I would not have necessarily preordained that. So I think the, the technology aperture has been opening rather than closing, which I think is a really good thing. I think the shift to net zero emissions has been, it's like so simple and it, you know, I think people almost take it for granted now, but turn the clock back, you know, like three years or four years and it was barely on people's lips. And we've seen a shift over time uh, from the, you know, for those who like myself, have been engaged in climate conversations for a very long period of time, a shift from first stabilizing atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. That was the framework convention on climate change in 1992. Then there's a focus in the Paris Agreement around temperature change and 1.5 and 2 degrees. Well, the thing about that is, while that, that's, that's the right goal at a global level, and that is scientifically consistent with where we need to head, it's not actionable. Nobody controls global temperatures and no individual country, no individual company uh, controls global atmospheric emission uh, concentrations. But net zero is different. And net zero, like it leads to the same destination, but it's it's a decision concept that's actionable at the global level. It's actionable at the country level. It's actionable at a company level. And I think that that's been a very, very important shift in thinking that enables uh, every decision maker at multiple levels of the world, uh, from the local community to the company to you know global climate policy conversations, to focus in on something that they can actually control. So let me leave it at that. I think that's been a very healthy development. It doesn't make it easy, but I think it's it's been pointing us in a, in a direction that's making decisions and actions much more concrete. Mm. Well, thank you for both of those points. And I'll I'll just reflect back to you that in combination, this focus on emissions, on uh, net zero emissions, and this opening of the aperture has left space for companies and industries and even um po you know political backgrounds that otherwise wouldn't have been able to participate in the conversation because of the culture wars and so these this idea of getting really clear about reducing emissions and then having a wide range of technology options so that oil and gas companies can come to the table as leaders as participants 
it's re- it really it truly does make space for for us all to participate as civic leaders in the process. So I concur with your optimism in a very like granular way of of it translating to the work that we do on the ground. So Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. It was just a pleasure to have you. Oh, likewise, you know, Tisha, it's it's always um, great to have time to, to chat with you. You know, really appreciate you also doing the leadership work you're doing on the communications front with with the energy transition, which is a um, a complex problem. It's going to take time, but it's it's something that also you know requires really deep and sincere work on on the part of folks like yourself. So thank you. Thank you. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Richard for joining me. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting was this idea of the international fabric of communications and how important it's going to be that we get these decisions right and communicate about them and learn from each other along the way. I would like to know what you found interesting, so I hope you will reach out to us. You can find us at realdecarbonization.com and energythinks.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast. It helps other oil and gas leaders find us. I'd like to thank Adon Rubio for making this podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <laughs>